Well, hopefully the message has been clear so far, what we're celebrating this morning. Jesus is alive. The Lord is risen. Oh, come on, you weren't ready. The Lord is risen. Lord is risen. There you go, that's better. Well, let's take our Bibles. This music stand is not going to work. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. Yeah, if I could grab one, thank you. We're going to focus this morning. I want to thank our, while I'm saying this, I want to thank our tech team and the guys who put the stuff on the screens and make the, thank you guys, um, make the sound work. I'm so, I'm so very, very grateful to them. We throw a lot of things at them at the last minute sometimes, and they always come through, so I praise the Lord for them, and I want to thank them again. Um, We're going to focus this morning, Luke chapter 24, just on one fact, just on one fact, and this is the most important fact in all of human history. There's only one thing we need to talk about this morning, and it is the linchpin for everything. Everything evolves around it. Now, on, on one hand, if this fact somehow isn't true, and people have been trying to disprove it for years, but if it isn't true, then mankind has a significant, inescapable, insurmountable, unconquerable problem. Sin. If the fact that we're going to talk about is, is false, if it's not true, if there's no merit to it, if it's just a hoax, then, then that doesn't make man's position better. It makes man's position worse. Because we now have a problem we cannot overcome. But if this is true, and it's never been convincingly disproven, then every person not only has to personally respond to it or deny it, but it changes everything that man stands for. You already know what the truth is because you've heard it proclaimed about 30 times this morning. The truth is that the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. It's the greatest truth that's ever been stated. It's the greatest truth that, that mankind could possibly hear. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. And nobody has ever been able to legitimately explain that other than believing what the Bible says happened. There's no other way to state it, There's, and we'll talk about it this morning. There's no other way to, to prove something else. So I want to start with our text, Luke chapter 24. I'm sure you know it well. We're going to read verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to look at the facts and the arguments. Okay, Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. And the other women were with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to the apostles as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, the skeptic will say, well, that's fine, and you're reading from the Bible, and you're using the Bible as proof. You're trusting what the Bible says. So you can't be objective. You can't prove that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and that he's alive in heaven right now because your only resource is the Bible. The response to the skeptic would be, you can't prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And the burden of proof is not on me. The burden of proof is on you. Because the tomb is empty. So we believe it, and the evidence points to it being right, so in order to disprove it, in order for somebody to say, well, you're, you're full of hogwash, it's not true, you're just using the Bible, all right, well then, somebody who doesn't believe has to produce evidence that's more tangible and more convincing. Now, while we're thinking about that, I'd like to show you some pictures. I'd like to show you the graves of some other people that had been worshipped and revered as gods. The first picture is Muhammad's grave in Mecca. Muslims believe fully that his body is there in the tomb and they bow to Mecca five times a day and they make a pilgrimage there once in their lifetime because that's where he's buried. Buddha's body was cremated and placed in a number of monuments. Even one of his teeth is kept in a temple in Sri Lanka. I don't know why, but it is. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon faith, was buried in Illinois. Uh, his tomb is there. You can visit it today. Vladimir Lenin is in Moscow. You can see his body, actually. You can view it. Uh, also, along with him is Joseph Stalin, a man who founded communism and pushed that whole system of thinking. Karl Marx is also buried in Moscow. And their bodies, again, Lenin and Stalin, their bodies are visible. Hitler's grave is in Germany. Uh, there's a little controversy about where his body is. After he killed himself, though, uh, in his bunker at the end of World War II, eyewitnesses, and there were many of them, found his body, and they took it, and they cremated it, burned it, because that was his wish. Uh, and then there's been some controversy about where the ashes are. But there were a number of witnesses that saw that Hitler was dead. And then there's John Lennon's tomb. And the reason I include John Lennon in this is because in 1966, he said that the Beatles had become bigger than Jesus Christ. Well, three, days late, uh, three years later, they had broken up, and now, forgive me, they're just an oldies band from the 60s. They weren't bigger than Jesus, and they're not bigger than Jesus today. Now, there's a common thread to, to all these graves, and that is that they have bodies in them. People recognize that the graves are full, and there's no question that the person inside uh, might have, uh, th there's no question that the person inside did not defeat death by rising from the grave. Nobody is claiming that those people rose from the grave. Then we get to Jesus' grave. And I want to show you a picture of this. This is the tomb that many Christians and scholars believe is where Jesus was laid and where he rose again. Now, we don't know for sure, but it is a very legitimate possibility that this is actual site based on a number of factors. One is that it's located in a garden. The next is that it's outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It's right at the Sheep Gate, which is the gate of sacrifice. It has a view of the temple and the Mount of Olives and most of Jerusalem. And the most important fact about this site 
is that it's right next to Golgotha. And we've got a picture of Golgotha. That was the place of the skull. It's where Jesus was crucified. John 19 says that the tomb was very close to the place where Jesus was crucified. And the tomb itself, we've got an interior picture of that, shows very clear evidence that it was adapted for someone other than the original owner because the actual grave site was hewn out further. So you've got these, all these different facts. Now again, we don't know for sure. I can't prove to you today that that's the tomb of Jesus. And that's part of the point because in contrast to the other graves that we saw, we don't know where Jesus is. And for the sake of argument, for the sake of just just trying to to see the other side, let's assume that that tomb that we just saw isn't where Jesus is buried. And let's see if the opposition's case has merit. The first fact we know is that Jesus was buried. I don't think anybody disputes that. Even believers uh, trust that Jesus died and was buried according to what Scripture uh, had predicted and according to what happened uh, in the eyewitness accounts that we have. So Jesus did die. He was buried. His grave, second of all, was definitely prominent at the time. He was not buried in some hidden cave or or some out-of-the-way place in the middle of the night where nobody knew what was going on. We know who the owner of the grave was. It was Joseph of Arimathea who came and asked for the body. We know that it was a very public grave. It was close by to where they were crucified. We know that it was guarded by Roman soldiers who were stood guard to make sure that nothing happened. And we know that it was visited by the disciples. So at that time, in the first century, all of Jerusalem knew where Jesus was buried. It was not a secret. It was not surreptitious in any way. Everybody knew that's where Jesus was. Now that begs a question. If the gravesite was that prominent, and Jesus was such a controversial figure, and we know that he was, if he was such a controversial figure, but if he was a fraud, then people would want to point at that grave that was prominent and well-known, and they would want to disprove what had happened. They would want to dispel any of the rumors and show that he had died. So if the tomb was that obvious, and we know that it was, and he is still there, why isn't there any kind of a clear marker, like with all the other tombs, that says, this is where Jesus Christ is laid? And that would be the ultimate conclusion. That, that would silence Christians forever. Because everything in our faith this morning rests on the fact that Jesus is alive. If Jesus is dead, then we go home. We're wasting our time, what the choir sang about, what we sang about as a congregation. It's, it's all a fraud. It's all a fake. None of it matters. We might as well just go to brunch now because none of it makes any difference if Jesus is still dead. But Jesus is alive. And our faith is based on that. If his body was still in a grave, it would be the greatest archaeological find of all time. It would person, put the person that finds it on the cover of every magazine, every newspaper, it would be the lead to every evening news. Every website in the world would lead with the story that Jesus Christ's body had been found. So really, it is beyond logical belief that no one can locate the actual grave and the actual bones of the most prominent, most controversial, most important person in human history. Now that leads us back to the garden tomb. We have one more picture. The garden tomb 
which I referred to earlier, has excellent arguments for being authentic. And I want you to see what the sign says. My grandparents actually put this sign in the garden too. Tell me what it says as a congregation. The tomb is empty. There's nothing in there today. It's just stone. The tomb is empty. Now, there are a couple other factors that we need to understand as to why the tomb is empty. What, what are the other possibilities? How can we explain this? Well, one of the most convincing factors is the motivation that so many different groups had to disprove the resurrection. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem when Jesus died and rose again that wanted to make sure that would have gone to any length possible to show that body three days after his death to prove he hadn't risen again that would have come back months later. They might have even put the body on display just to, just to show everybody that what Jesus had said was a lie, that what the disciples were purporting was a hoax, that, that this had all fallen apart, that every argument they could make about Jesus being Messiah, Jesus being Savior, that, that it was all a fix, that, that if they had just produced the body, then they could say, you guys need to be quiet because your Savior's dead. And there were a lot of groups that wanted to do that. But their reaction, or their lack of reaction, maybe is a better way to put it, and the complete lack of evidence is a very strong indictment of their denial of the resurrection. Now let's think through a couple of these groups. I don't know if you want to write them down or just listen. There are at least four powerful and prominent groups who had a vested interest in producing undeniable evidence of Jesus' permanent death. And even though they were opposed to each other, they had the commonality of purpose that if they could all get together and prove this, that all of them would be vindicated and the disciples would be pushed aside. First group was the Roman soldiers that were placed at the tomb to guard it. Now they would have been disgraced by the news that they weren't in possession of the body anymore and that they had been guarding the tomb. They were the best of the best. This was the elite guard. This was the palace guard. This was not just some rookie soldier, some private that they said, look, nobody wants to stay there all night, so let's just send you over there, and, and Charlie, just do your best. That's not it. They sent the finest, most powerful, most elite, most diligent, most trusted soldiers to guard that tomb. And they completely failed at their assignment. They completely failed. Now, they could argue that the body was misplaced, but there would be no defense for that. They could argue that the disciples had stolen the body, and if they did argue that, then they would have to answer, well, where were you? What were you doing? How did you let these guys come in? How did the most powerful and feared soldiers in the world get duped by a couple fishermen from Galilee? You guys are the finest of the finest. How did you let them come in and steal the body? So they didn't want to run that argument up the flagpole. The text in Matthew says that when they saw the angel, that they were so uh, fearful of his appearance that they, that they almost passed away in terms of their posture, that they fell like they were dead, that they passed out, that there was nothing they could do because of their fear. And now that put them in a huge bind. They had to fake the, face the repercussions of the fact that they were Roman soldiers who were efficient and didn't fail at everything, and now there's no longer a body. 
The second group of people were the Jewish leaders. The high priest Caiaphas, who had declared Jesus guilty and sentenced him, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the ones who had put him to death, they were at risk now, if the body wasn't there, of continued exposure of their hypocrisy. Nobody had been more critical. Nobody had stirred up the crowd more. Nobody had opposed Jesus more than them or been more obvious in their opposition. So, So the failure to actually carry out the execution would have been beyond humiliating. Not to mention now that they're dealing with the rumors that Jesus had been right, that Jesus was alive, that he was seeing, uh, being seen by hundreds of people, 400 by the time we get to Acts chapter 1. So, so now they've got to deal with this going around. They would have been the most motivated to find that body and show everybody that they were right and the disciples were wrong. Then you've got a third group. You've got King Herod, and he had a lot to lose. Because you remember his father had heard in Luke chapter 2 that the wise men came and said, where is the king of the Jews that's been born? And Herod, his father, Herod the Great, goes nuts. He starts commanding that every boy under the age of two is murdered. And all throughout the nation of Israel, they go and they, they kill every child under two, trying to root out Jesus. Now that was his dad. Little vendetta there. Little, 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 we got to make this right by the family. So it would have been to his advantage to produce the body, because that would validate that he was the actual king. And he faced a real populist threat now of not being able to prove that. And then you've got Pilate. Pilate had a big stake in it. He wanted to wash his hands of any complicity in the death. You remember when the crowd was chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify. He says, look, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. There's nothing. I've, I've, I've put him on trial twice. There's no guilt in this man. And the crowd's chanting, kill him, kill him, kill him. And he says, look, I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to pour water over my hands. My blood is not, his blood is not on my hands. But now Pilate's in a difficult situation because his face is the last one that the crowd had seen pronouncing the sentence. Yes, go ahead, crucify him. So how long would it take for the crowd, who we know was fickle, right, to to come back and say, hey, you're the one at fault. And he's got a career to think of. He's a politician. Every politician thinks about his career. Everybody say amen to that. So he would be labeled as a failure But if he found the body, he would be free of all accusation. See, each group had a motivation. Each group had a reason and the resources to find him on their own. But if they had combined together to disprove the resurrection, to squash any claim that Jesus was alive, they would be driven to substantiate that. They would be driven to say, no, Jesus is dead. He's still dead. He's always going to be dead. And we're going to make sure that you know that every single day that your Savior is dead. And we're going to quell this uprising of followers. And we're going to make sure that you guys are quiet because your Savior is not alive. And the best way to do that when the news broke that Jesus had risen from the grave would be to march down to the tomb to to have the soldiers roll back the stone to bring the body out to uncover his face and to say, look. But they couldn't do that because the tomb was empty. Look at chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. There was nothing there. And that 
second factor makes the empty tomb convincing. What, what struck me this week as I was studying was the disciples' reaction to the news. Now, let's, let's assume for a moment that this is a hoax, that, that somehow the disciples figured out a way to either overpower the guards, which was, it's just so ridiculous, we don't even want to go there. But let's just assume for argument that the disciples either overpowered the guards or they somehow snuck past them, rolled back a stone that took multiple people to move and would have been loud. But, but somehow, while the Roman soldiers who weren't allowed to sleep on the job, somehow they snuck behind, rolled back the stone, went in, grabbed the body, came out and snuck past the soldiers. Let's assume that that's true. Now, wouldn't it be obvious that they would want to brag about that? They'd want to say, look at what we did. We got behind those Roman soldiers, and we got, we got him out. But really, their bragging would have been about something even more prominent. Somehow, if they had faked the resurrection, and they wanted to perpetuate this fraud that Jesus had risen from the grave, which would be a pretty big accomplishment... If that's true, if this is all a fraud, then ask yourself, why in the world do the disciples write about themselves in such an embarrassing way? Why is it that not one of the 11 disciples that were remaining was there at the tomb? Why was there no anticipation, no expectation, no, no thought that, hey, Jesus said he's going to rise again, so we're going to be there. If they're going to perpetuate a hoax, they would have said, well, we were there. We saw it when it happened, and, and, and we all walked away together. It was wonderful. Or we look at verse 5, and verse 5 says that when the women do get the news from the angel, that they're completely fearful, and they don't understand what's going on until they remember later what Jesus had said. And then when they go to tell the disciples in verse 11... It says the disciples didn't say, hey, that's wonderful. We've been anticipating this. They say, you ladies are crazy. You're nuts. That's nonsense. Be quiet. Stop it. How dare you bring this lie to us? Jesus isn't alive. Why would they portray themselves as thinking that it was nonsense and refusing to believe? I mean, talk about throwing them under the bus historically if they're all in this together, right? I mean, it makes them look horrible. And then John 20 says that they were hiding in a locked room, that they were fearful of the Jews. Now, that doesn't make them look very confident. And then when Jesus appears to them, he has to gently scold them. If you look at the text in John 20, he, he, he gently scolds them. Why don't we have faith? Why didn't you believe this? Why are you so surprised that I'm here standing in front of you? What, what's the problem here, guys? I've been with you for three years. I told you multiple times I'm going to be arrested, die, and rise again. Why aren't you ready? Why don't you have faith? Why now that I'm standing here in front of you showing you my wounds? Why don't you believe that? And then Thomas even flatly rejects the idea, and he, because he wasn't there, demands physical proof. Now, if he's in on the hoax, he can't be very happy about that narrative. Because what do we know? When you say the word Thomas about the apostle, what's the next word? The doubter, right? So, so Thomas is taking a hit for the team here, even though he's in on the hoax. Why would he do that? There's not one positive reaction that the disciples have in Jesus' resurrection if they're driving the narrative, if they're perpetuating the hoax, why would they do that to themselves? 
Not to mention the fact that as this continued to go on, it would run out of steam. People would stop paying attention. It would get old after a while. Yeah, 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 Jesus rose again. That's great, guys. Good story. Okay, where is he? Oh, you don't have him? Okay, well, all right, good. I mean, it it would have gotten old. But instead, here's what's so powerful. Just the opposite happens. Fifty days later, they take a stand in front of all the people in Jerusalem, tens of thousands of people that have come in from nations all around to worship at Pentecost. They have zero experience in talking to any kind of a crowd. They had been ineffective before when Jesus sent them out to ministry. They they had no courage, no boldness whatsoever. And yet now they've got tens of thousands of people and they stand up and say, let us tell you about Jesus Christ. Let us tell you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. If they're perpetuating a lie after seven weeks, they're not going to be very bold. And then the religious leaders come along and say, you guys need to be quiet. We've had enough of you. And they say, you know what? We don't care what you say. You can throw us in jail. You can kill us. We do not care because we are going to keep saying that Jesus Christ is alive. They get more bold, not less bold. And listen, when you're advertising a lie, you don't get more bold. You become less confident, more exposed, And now, even at the threat of their life, they do not back down. And we're not talking one or two people here. We're talking 120 plus. And then that grows into tens of thousands. And not one of them backs down. If they're carrying a hoax, if the grave is full, if Jesus isn't alive, I cannot imagine how that would have happened. So that leaves one more possibility as to why the tomb's empty. And let's finish with this. Look back at verse 5 and let's read again. The angel said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. You want to know how we know the tomb is empty? Because the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. It's the only explanation. It's the only way to understand it. It's the only logical conclusion that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. He defeated sin and death and rose from the grave after three days. We don't dispute that he died. We don't dispute that he was buried. That was necessary to defeat sin and death. We do affirm this morning that he rose again. Because the evidence proves it, and the absence of evidence proves it, and the disciples verified it. And here's what makes that so absolutely essential to understand. If the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive... Better yet, since the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive, then that proves everything he said. Since the tomb is empty and since Jesus is alive, it proves everything he said. The only reason Jesus would rise from the grave is to defeat sin and death and offer us eternal salvation through him. That was his whole purpose in coming. He came to seek and to save that which is lost, which is every single one of us. 
He says in John 3, right after John 3, 16, that we know so well, he says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came that the world through me might be saved. He says in John 14, I'm the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one comes to the Father. No one experiences salvation except through me. So then he proved it. He became sin. We read it Friday night. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. He literally became the selfless, spotless, sacrificial lamb who went to the cross, whose blood was spilled out for the atonement of sin. He defeated death by overcoming the grave. He defeated uh, the enemy by overcoming the grave. He's the only one who's qualified to be the Savior because he's the only one who's completely righteous. And his promise of eternal life is fulfilled, listen, when we confess our sins and trust in him alone. Everything Jesus said he was going to do is fulfilled. And it's all possible and it's only possible because the grave is empty. If Jesus is still dead this morning, then we are hopeless. There is no cure for sin. But because he's alive, he offers eternal hope. He offers the removal of sin's curse. He offers salvation and forgiveness that is complete. He says, the bondage you've been under with your sin, it's gone. You're free from it because I'm alive. He is the Savior. He is the only Savior. Not one other person in history has been able to defeat death and overcome death and come back from the grave. Everybody else is in the grave, but he's in heaven. And he's interceding for us. And he's our Savior and our Lord and our friend. For the past two centuries, people have tried to deny that. They've tried to disprove it. They've just said, well, you know, I... It, it can't be reasonable. Come on. He rose from the grave. I can't, it doesn't happen. Well, I know it seems out there. But prove it didn't happen. Prove it didn't happen. Some people want to just ignore him. Well, I, you know, I can't explain it, so I'm just going just gonna to look the other way. Or they dismiss him as something that we can't understand and we can't prove. And yet they constantly demand that we prove why we believe in him. Now listen, I don't know what the motivation is. I don't know if people want to live for themselves or, or they're not able to trust what they don't see or, or they want to disprove it, but, but they don't know how. I do know that there are a lot of motivations in the days that followed his death to prove it wasn't true. And there were a lot of people that had the motivation and the resources and the desire to prove he wasn't really alive. But again, no one did and no one has and no one ever will because Jesus' grave is empty. Now we've got to ask ourselves, and I'm done and you've listened so patiently we've got to ask ourselves what, and this is, this is to each of us, is a personal question. What do I believe about Jesus? What do I do with this evidence? And if you don't believe this morning, if you're here, you came, I don't know if it was a friend or family member, you just saw the sign and wandered in, it, it's fine. We're so glad that you're here. But, but if you don't know Christ, then what's your motivation? What's driving that? 
God's love and mercy is being offered freely. Christ paid all the price. The only thing we have to do is trust and believe that it is true. And God removes sin and removes our desire for sin. And we're given a new nature. It's like we're born all over again. Why would we turn away from that? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is available to anyone, anyone, anyone who believes that He is the only Savior. It is available to anyone, no matter what your past is, no matter how awful it is, no matter how much sin you have, no matter how much guilt you have, no matter how much you feel unworthy. Listen, we're all in that spot. It doesn't matter what your past is. What matters is your future. And if you will renounce sin and trust in Christ as your Savior, He will completely forgive you and totally exonerate you from sin and He'll change your life forever. He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one who was qualified to offer that salvation and He joyfully extends it to you. He extended it to me in 1974 and I trusted Him. He extended it to many people in this room who have trusted Christ. But you have to receive it. And if you don't know Him this morning or you've been in church all your life but you just, you just, you just wandered, you just, you're doing your own thing and you're confused and you don't know what's going on. Listen, I don't want you to leave today without knowing Christ as your Savior. I want you to know it right now. Your eternal future is hanging in the balance. And right now where you sit, you can say, God, I confess my sin and I trust you. I believe that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, I can be saved. You can go from death to life like that. It's not a process. It's not going to take you years. It is instantaneous. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Tell me the rest of the verse. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything's gone. When Jesus looks at my life and He sees the sin I committed yesterday and He sees the sin I committed today, it's not there anymore. He's wiped it clean. It's white as snow. Jesus did that, not me. And your life can be changed in that way. And I can tell you from personal experience, there is nothing like knowing Christ. There is nothing like experiencing His grace. The greatest joy you've ever had in life when you got married or you had kids or whatever. Listen, that's, that's nothing. Paul says in Philippians 3, it's dung compared to knowing Christ. There's nothing greater. And this morning, right here, 20 to 11, on April 5th, 2015, you can know Jesus Christ and be sure of your salvation. And there is no better day to do it than on the day we celebrate the empty tomb.